wanna be a starving artist I don't wanna be a starving artist I just want to find a way to live Hi, I'm Anna Easley. You are listening to Starving Artist, the internet home of honest conversations about art and money. As season one is drawing to a close, I've been reflecting on this whole project, actually. It's been such a learning experience, which is why this episode is such a fitting one. It's one of the very first interviews that I did almost exactly a year ago, and it's with someone that I am a huge fan of, Steve Rogenbuck, which is probably why I sound (laughs) so fangirly in this interview. Steve Rogenbach is an American video poet who's most famous for his YouTube videos, which really have to be seen to be believed. They feature mostly self-recorded footage of Steve walking through the snow, through the desert, a park, his house, a party, and improvised talking slash yelling directly to camera. I remember finding his videos in the dead of night while I was tooling around on my computer, procrastinating from work, and just feeling like I'd been dropped into a confusing, amazing, uplifting, and very, very weird part of the internet. And because I'll absolutely do no justice to his work here, I'm going to play you an audio clip of one of my favorite videos of his. It's called Life Is Right Now 2015, This is a special video. Please view this with a plant or animals. This clip is about two minutes long and it's cut together footage of Steve in Hawaii and Alaska talking to camera on one of his favorite topics, the wonder of the universe. I recorded a previous version of this video where I was like, oh my God, inside my lungs, there's 500,000 air sacs. But I had the wrong statistic. It was 500 million air sacs. How would your mindset be different if you knew that this was your very last day? I think that I would just love everything. The little voice in your head that talks, that voice will end. You are going to end. You assholes look. This earth is fucking cute. The people here are cute. And I want you to know that in this exact moment, you could stop and become so aware of your physical surroundings and your presence in it and how parts of you can move and how space is actually 3D and how all of the video games in the world are nothing compared to this. Fuck all of duty, just drink water and get fucked up about the fact that your body knows exactly what to do with it and feel the fucking cuteness of that. Every time I breathe in, 500 million. 500 million! What the fuck? 500 million! 500 million! This is basically impossible! The fact that all this has happened is amazing! This is basically impossible! I want to thank each of you trees. I want to thank all the trees for making it out tonight. The sun is great. The sun never stops. The sun is always on. Shout out to the sun. Life is right now! Life is right now! Have I convinced you that when you breathe, it is the most miraculous thing that has ever happened in history? And the next time you breathe, it is the most miraculous thing that has ever happened in history again? Have I convinced you that every part of you is amazing on principle for existing? And that anyone who fucks with your self-esteem is fundamentally misunderstanding the human condition they can get the fuck out of here? Thank you for being here. Thank you for trying your best. Let's keep going. We've got a ways to go yet. This is amazing. 
I want to shake the hand of every tree. Just reach out and say thank you. Thank you for your service. I'm thanking the plants today. So that is Steve. And when I first found his work, I was floored, amazed, crying. And then I was like, how? How does this person do this? How does this person make this? And when I looked further, I realized that Steve quit his MFA in 2011. Since then, he's made over 100 YouTube videos. He started a Patreon. He started a publishing house, Boost House, in 2014. He's released six poetry books. And in 2015, he did a complete tour of the U.S., visiting every state, performing 122 poetry gigs in just one year. That's like a show every three days. His videos alone are just so time intensive to make. And so that just made me want to ask more, how? In this interview, he answers that question for me. And we talk about being frugal as an artist, Steve's unshakable belief in himself, and why you should learn from tech bros about content marketing. Before we get started, as many of you will know, for the rest of this season, I've joined forces with Etsy, the online marketplace where you can set up your own store in under 10 minutes, as I proved a couple of episodes ago, and you can sell your artwork. And as part of that, I'm trying my hand at making my own Etsy store. This week, I attempt to answer the question that has always stopped me from even beginning to set up a store in the first place. As a creative who makes a lot of podcasts, not a lot of things you can buy, what the hell should I actually sell? Listen in at the very end of this episode to hear what I ended up coming up with. And for now, let's get to it. To start with, can you talk a little bit about who you are? (laughs) (laughs) And what you do? Because what you do is kind of... I think to most people it would be kind of weird. Most people aren't like, that's a thing. Yeah. That's a job. Yeah. I'm Steve Rogenbuck. I am a video artist and poet and podcast maker. That's how I've been saying it lately. I used to just call myself a poet and then explain that like I'm a poet who started doing YouTube videos and started making memes and other stuff. But now I just say that I'm this list of things. I'm most known for my videos on YouTube. You can type Steve Rogenbuck into YouTube and you'll find a whole bunch. (laughs) You'll find a lot. I'm trying to be funny in them usually. And then sometimes I'm saying something very deep from the heart. A lot of people say they're inspirational. Certain ones more than others, maybe. Some of them I'm just really joking around. And I also publish books then of, of my written poetry. And I also go on tours where I'm performing my poetry and sort of doing something that looks kind of like stand-up comedy. <laughs> and yeah, my podcast is is very, I do whatever I want with it, really. I um, Amorphous. Yeah. People ask me questions, my opinion on things or, you know, whatever. It's kind of like it's kind of like a never-ending interview. It's yes. kind of it yeah, it's kind of just like people ask me about things and then I like say my bit about them. Yeah, I think that a lot of how you do stuff, it's very interactive. Mm-hmm. Like even yeah. I saw some bits of the Illuminati Power Hour. 
Oh, you did. <laughs> Wait, at the time? Like, no, 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 no. There's a highlights video of it. Oh, there's like a video that somebody recorded of me yeah. doing it once? Yeah. Yeah. So back in 2012, I did a live stream show called the Illuminati Power Hour. And then after that and before that too, I also did live stream where I, you know, interacted with people over the chat. And I haven't been doing it that much for a while. I did a Periscope uh, a yeah. couple times. I feel done some Periscoping, but like I don't have a very big audience on there because my audience is like spread over like multiple social networks and like not everybody uses Periscope, it seems like, in my audience. So I might start doing them through Facebook Live or through YouTube has the Google Hangouts on air I've been thinking about doing. Yeah. I haven't been doing that much of that, but I interact with people on Snapchat a lot, the people who follow me on there and on Twitter and sometimes other places. I used to do a lot of interacting on social media. That was really how I built my following to start with was I would like, I would message people and follow people and send weird poetic jokey comments to people and then they'd be like who the heck is this and then they'd go and look at my videos you know <laughs> so before we get into the like thoughts and patterns about the money aspect of how you do what you do I just wanted to get a bit of an idea for people in terms of like how the fuck does the money stuff work for you because mm-hmm. I think you've been through quite a process as we all do in terms of deciding how you're going to go about living in a capitalist system and being creative and trying to do work that you think is valuable. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So what does that look like for you now? So now I have various income streams through my work. So last year I did a ton of touring. And so I think my main income stream last year was live events. And I did get some events where somebody from a college reached out, like a university reached out to book me and they had like some actual money to pay me. Like some of them paid me like $500 to come do a reading or talk, some even much more than that, even over a thousand. But those are pretty rare for me. So a lot of my events last year were DIY events at people's houses or cafes or bookstores or small music venues. And usually then I just try to get the host to take $5 at the door, suggest a donation or something. And usually I can get $100 or $150 or something from that. And then also I will have a bunch of my books with me that I will sell afterwards. And they're self-published books, which I think is helpful in terms of making money. Because? Because... I don't have to give any money to a publisher or to Amazon for selling them or anything. It's just I pay to get them printed and then I get all the rest. Of course, if you had a publisher that was actually helping you reach tons more people, that might make you more money from your book. But for me, it seemed like the only presses that were interested in publishing me have been like small presses. I haven't really pursued a big press. I don't know what would happen if I did, but it seemed like I can reach an audience on my own and I'll make more money per book if I just self-publish it. So that I've been self-publishing. Also, I really enjoy the freedom of self-publishing. I can do weird stuff with my books. I can put wacky stuff like on the back covers sometimes. The book that's sitting right here that I put out in 2015 called Live My Life has on the back an advertisement for the sky. (laughs) And on one of my other books, I wrote Quit Dairy, and I wrote all this stuff about the dairy industry that I think is horrible. And so I was like encouraging people to quit dairy. (laughs) (laughs) On the back cover of my book, you know, and I didn't have to run it by a publisher or anything. I did one book where I uh, put selfies of myself along with side the poems. Uh, 
Anyway. So live shows. Yeah, yeah. So with the live shows, yeah, if I'm also selling books, usually I could sell like 10 books at a, at a small DIY show or something if it's like my audience. Do you still make money through Boost House? Yeah, so Boost House was the small publisher that I started to help publish other people's books. And I think that comes out financially in the positive, but like honestly, it's been difficult to tell at certain times because <laughs> I don't keep that tight of accounting on it. And like if we're publishing other people's books, we pay a pretty big royalty to the author. Like I think we pay more to the authors than most presses do. And we don't make that much, you know? <laughs> so for me, the small press publisher does not make me money. Really. I don't consider it making me money. Hopefully it comes out like breaking even or, or better, but I don't think it it doesn't do much. It, for a while, Boost House was actually losing me money because huh. the idea was that it would be a house in two senses of the word. It was a publishing house. We publish people's books, but also it was a communal house where we lived together. And it's sort of like I wanted it to be like an artist's residency. Like we could invite people to come and stay for free and like just work on their art. Like I thought that would be really cool. Then we realized after like the first year, like we don't make enough money to like pay for everybody's rent and food. So then we switched it up. So it's more like a co-op house. Like people who live there do have to pay rent and like pay a contribution for food. But it was still like an intentional community in the sense that we took applications for residents. Like we asked them what their values were and what they do, what they're into and what they believe in and stuff. So in 2015, I was putting a lot of the tour money that I was making on tour into Boost House just to pay for that stuff before we set up the thing where people were paying rent and stuff. So it was like, I feel like I was losing money for Boost House for a while. And since then, I think since 2014, you've also been on Patreon. Yeah. Yeah. Patreon. I make money for my videos through there. A lot of people think that if you're like a YouTube star, you can make money off advertisements on YouTube. And that's true if you have like millions of views. But if you only have like a few thousand views per video, you'd get like very little money per video. So I don't even put YouTube ads on my videos. Usually if you see a, an ad on one of my YouTube videos, it's because I used copyrighted music. And so YouTube detected that and they put the ad on to give revenue to the record label is my understanding. Oh. I'm not entirely sure about that, but that's what I think. But I do make money from my videos since 2014. Since I started a Patreon page, people can donate like $2 per video or $5 per video or whatever. I do have reward levels at a, at a couple different levels. If you donate $6.66 per video. You are a fully satanic backer. A fully satanic backer, which means that, <laughs> um, which means that I will record an audio clip a lot of people like want me to record something that's like a personalized sort of pump up clip <laughs> or or else it's like some or else it's like basically a clip like similar to my podcast where I'm answering a question or responding on a certain subject that the person wants or something. And then if at the um $3.33 level, which is half satanic <laughs> level, then I I send a postcard and I usually check to see like am I following you on all social media and stuff. I am a fully satanic yeah. backer and I never I still haven't gotten you to yeah. give me a video. You know, no, the thing is with that, 
I wasn't recording videos over the whole summer. So the people who have recently started. No, no, no. Oh, no. You yours sent me was... an email. Okay. I never replied. Okay. You never replied. Because I was replied. like, what do I want? I no. don't know. Yeah. But I do get behind on the rewards sometimes, especially for the audio clips, because it's like, it's a bit of work I think to that's, do them. I think that's one thing about I think it's Patreon. quite common. It's actually a lot of, it can be a lot of work. It can be a lot. You know, when I first set up my Patreon, I did it with no rewards <laughs> because I knew from experience with Kickstarter and another thing that I did once, which I could talk about, also a different money-making operation. <laughs> um, I, I, I want to know about that. Yeah. I knew that from experience that when you get the money and then you're supposed to give a reward afterwards, it can be like hard to get yourself to do that. Like the reward fulfillment can feel like a very big burden because it's like you already got the money. So you're not doing it feeling motivated by the money or something. So the thing that I did other than Kickstarter and Patreon that I had that experience with was this one month I was short on rent for like the last few days of the month. I was like, oh, I need to make some money like quickly. And so I was thinking of what my options were and I came up with this idea that I would I would accept PayPal payments from people of $10, which is arguably underpriced. But what I would do for them is I would write them a story, like a short story about a character that has their name. And if they wanted any other specific stuff in it, like, oh, have me have a pet rabbit in the story, I would do that too. And that actually... It took me a long time to fulfill that, to, to write all those stories. I kept putting it off for some reason. I don't know why it was so hard to fulfill that, but I felt bad about it all the time. I sent several apology emails to yep. people saying, sorry, I'm still not done. I've written like half of them now, but you know. I started a Patreon earlier this year and it was much more successful than I thought it would be. Wow. And um, I had said that I would write everyone a postcard. Yeah. And it was great at a painful experience just hours yeah. and hours yeah sitting in front of crappy tv yeah yeah i don't know why why that is that it's like hard sometimes for those things for me i find that it's actually a lot of kind of like emotional labor i think there's this weight of expectations of what you can give someone i don't know if you feel yeah, that way maybe and wanting to kind of yeah. give someone the thing that they think that you are because mm. in some ways, what you make is valuable, but in some ways, people, I think, are supporting you because of who they think that you are. Does mm. that make sense? Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> the, um, the thing about Patreon is that most of the people on it who support you, probably they don't actually care that much about the reward. Yeah. They like they want to support you just making your art. That's kind of like the ethos of the platform, I feel like. Yes, definitely. So... That's good. Usually people don't actually care that much about the rewards and stuff like that. But still, something to be wary of, like not signing yourself up for too much. <laughs> it's not a no energy income stream. But like, oh, yeah. yeah. Well, when I did it with no rewards, it was actually quite low energy. But then I was <laughs> like, you know what? I should give these people more of my attention because it's like they're actually making it more possible for me to do what I love with my time. You know, yeah. so it's like I feel like I want to like pay them back or something. But the thing about it is that I want to do it in ways that are interesting or exciting. When I have a list of like, okay, I need to send 50 postcards to all these people. It doesn't sound like it's actually that special. Like it yeah. might feel special to that person when they get it. But to me, it doesn't feel that special. I feel like I would almost rather not 
promise them any postcard, but then send them a postcard <laughs> because then it would really mean something to them, yes, right? Yes. I've been thinking about doing that just like people who have ordered from Boost House or something in the past year, like go back and like send a hundred of them a postcard or something. That might mean a lot more to those people because it's not expected, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I've had some people on Patreon who said they didn't want anything from me. Yeah, they were yeah. like, just please don't send me anything. So then yeah, I do send too. them things occasionally. I see. <laughs> and they're like, oh, that's really nice. Okay. They're not like <laughs> mad at you or something. <laughs> no, they're not mad. Yeah. And in terms of that kind of practical stuff, you haven't had like a normal job since like yeah. 2012, except for, I think you said working on your dad's yeah, farm. Yeah, I did work on my dad's farm one fall, but I didn't need to, yeah. like financially. I was just sort of a decision that I wanted to go back home and focus on that for a bit and take a break from having to make as many things on the internet and stuff. It was kind of an emotional time for me. But the first month that I noticed that I had made more from my art and poetry stuff than I spent was March of 2012. I remember I was traveling. That was a very interesting year for me though. I had just quit my MFA in poetry and I decided that at first I was like, I'm just gonna stay home on my dad's farm or something since he said that I could stay there and I wouldn't have to pay rent. And I was like, I'll just stay home and I'll like work on my blog and building up an audience from home, you know, and I'll just like try to get to full time via that way. But I was like, you know what? My dad lives on a farm in the middle of nowhere. And I knew that I would feel isolated and like lonely if I did that. So what I decided to do was post on my Facebook and Twitter. And I had already been building up a little bit of a network. And so I decided to just stay with anybody who would let me stay with them, couch surf for a year, basically. And so that's what I did in 2012. So my expenses were very low. I did travel, but like I usually traveled via a very cheap bus. And I actually made a video on YouTube about Megabus, like getting the cheapest Megabus tickets, you know, and I've made other content about getting cheap travel tickets and stuff. And still, I like I continue to live like quite frugally. And I think that's a really big, potentially important part of making it work as like an artist who's trying to live off of income from their art. It's like I realized at one point there's no such thing as making it or not making it or like making a living or not making a living. It's like everybody has a different level of expenses that they need. If you have like kids that you need to support and an expensive city that you need to live in for some reason, and you have like a health condition where your medical costs are a lot, then you actually need to make a lot of money. And that's gonna be a lot harder for that person probably to make a living from their art stuff. But other people, you might be able to live in a very cheap place somehow, or even for free somehow. You might be able to like eat a very cheaply, you know, and like you don't need to have a car or have, you know, you don't need to support anybody or anything. You could get your expenses really low, potentially. And then you hardly have to make any money, <laughs> you know? And so then it's like, I realized, for example, if I need to make a thousand dollars a month to live, or like, let's go a little bit more of a range, which is, these are all still in a frugal range, according to like, Amer yeah, American is, standards. I was going to say, what does but, frugal mean to you? Like, that's so subjective. Yeah, it is. I think all my friends are poor. So I think even like my standard is lower than most 
American standard or probably Australians too of like what frugal means because like I feel like I hardly know anybody who makes more than like 20 or $30,000 a year like all my friends work shit jobs or they don't have a job currently or they're in school or something you know and so to me like frugal is really <laughs> really scraping the bottom you know I don't have health insurance currently because it seemed like too much it just seemed like too much. And I think I would have been able to get uh, Medicare, Medi- Medicaid, 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 but I think I messed up not getting the paperwork submitted on time. So, you know, that's something. But if, for example, you decide that you need $2,000 a month to live or maybe 1000 or maybe 500 it's like if you thought you needed 2000 a month to quote unquote make a living, but you find a way to somehow get your expenses down to 1000 a month, then you literally only have to sell half as many books or you only have to do half as many tour dates, or you only have to reach like half as big of an audience. And that takes so much pressure off the amount of growth or the amount of exposure. It makes it so much more realistic that you could build that up just yourself on social media or just through whatever connections you might happen to have, you know, over time. And then if you can get it even down further to like 500 a month, you find out some weird way that you're like living for free in some house or like getting all your food for free out of dumpsters or who knows what. If you get it down to that low, then you're only a quarter as many as you have to reach, you know? And it's like, it just makes it like so much more achievable if you can live mostly cheaply. Yeah, I think that there can often be expectations around like what you need to have to be a real artist. Yeah. So that makes sense. I do all of my work from home. Mm-hmm. I don't have a studio because yeah. I'm like, I don't, that seems like a pile of money that I would be yeah. giving. Yeah, so for I, sure. It doesn't make sense to me because then I'd need to do more of something else that I probably don't like. Yeah. To <laughs> Yeah, that makes sense to me, yeah. But there's this weird, it depends like what kinds of social groups you're hanging out with, but there can be some kind of judgments around how you're supposed to be living yeah. to be successful. Or yeah, successful. like I take more seriously than most people the idea of not eating at restaurants to save money. Also, it's a health thing, though, because I feel like most restaurant food is not healthy. Even the stuff that's supposedly is, like marketed as healthy, usually it's not as healthy as it would be if you prepared it at home. I had one experience on tour where like I was eating really affordably. I had like some lentils and rice and some fruit and vegetables, but I was eating like lentils and rice as a lot of my like calories. And I remember I got like $12 of groceries that like lasted me like several days. I was just eating that. And then the one night after a reading, I went out to a restaurant and it was like $12 just for my own portion. And I had no leftovers. And I was like, ah, it's such a waste. I mean, I'm like debate. I'm like feeling bad over $12, which some people might not consider like anything. But, you know, it really pointed out to me like it really makes a difference. The little things like that. There's a blog which you might enjoy called Mr. Money Mustache. I've heard of it. Yeah. Yeah. And what him and I think his wife did was just work, I think, just above average paying jobs in America. Yeah. And they just saved all of their money. So they didn't live in the way that you would expect for someone earning that much. And then they, I think they quit their jobs after five or seven years. And now they're kind of retired and they're 32 or something. Mm -hmm. I find that really interesting around like, how do we work out what we value? And how do we work out where we fit and prioritize the different stuff? One thing I wanted to ask you about was, so I kind of see you as being someone who's who's aware of the realities of living in a capitalist system where you need to have dollars. But beyond kind of meeting your own needs, you're more interested in 
how you can make valuable things in the world rather than tending your own nest. Does that resonate for you? And kind of how did you come to taking that approach? Seems like a big question. Seems like it could could take a different directions. <laughs> I mean, money makes life a lot easier. This is true. <laughs> it's like it can help with a lot of stuff, but like it seems like it's an obvious truth that money doesn't make you happy or whatever, you know? Like I'm very aware of like what I'm contributing and trying to contribute the most that I can or the best that I can in my life, thinking about what my purpose is, what my gifts are, and like trying to give my gifts. What are your gifts? Like either what do you think your gifts are yeah. or what do people tell you yeah, yeah. that your gifts well, are? Well, see, okay, so the thing that people tell me all the time is that my videos especially, but also my other work, but especially the videos have succeeded to make them feel a lot better when they feel bad and that they've made them laugh and that they've helped them to appreciate the world. Like zoom out and sort of see like how weird it is that we're alive and like appreciate that and feel that on a, like a visceral level and like check back into that when they've gotten weighted down by other stuff and all that. So that's like one form of value that I seem to have been able to effectively give to lots of people. And through my words, my speaking and my delivery of my words and the videos have been the most effective form. So that's something that I know that I can give a lot and I think that might be my main gift is like making people feel <laughs> like that might be my main gift to give, but it's tricky to figure out because I want to do that in a way that is responsible to bigger questions too, you know, like talking about capitalism is connected to everything. And it's like learning about politics, learning about racism and sexism and huge other systems of oppression, like trying to think, okay, I don't just want to make people happier by like telling a good joke or whatever. Like that's great. If I make people laugh, that's really great. Or if I make people like feel more grateful for what they already have, that's great. But it's like, there's people in the world who are totally squashed by these oppressive systems. And I've been thinking like, what does my work do for those people? Does my work do anything for those people? I don't know, maybe some of them would get into it and laugh at it or something, but a lot of them, it probably is not doing anything for them. And I'm thinking like the past year or two, I've been thinking more about that and like, how am I helping with those bigger questions with my work, you know? Yeah. And like trying to, on my podcast, I talk about political issues sometimes to try to help unpack things like the things that I've figured out and that maybe some of my listeners haven't or something. On my social media, I try to retweet activists that I think are doing good and important work sometimes. Or sometimes I speak directly about things, but oftentimes I don't feel as confident doing that. Sometimes at my live shows, I talk about things. And I've almost thought maybe what my work is doing in regards to those things is almost as a as a source of nourishment for other people, like sort of like for activists and for people who are trying to affect things positively. As in like your work is kind of serving those people to keep being able to do that? Yeah, to not be so overwhelmed by all the crappy things in the world that they feel hopeless and give up, you know? Sort of like the message in my work a lot of times is like, we can do better. And so I'm trying to get people to almost have a little bit more optimism as they go about dealing with the realities that are very bad. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like it's political 
and trying to be a little bit more optimistic or something. Not necessarily optimistic, like you have to pretend that things are good or that they're going to be good, but something that is nourishing along the way or something that is sustaining or something that at least helps people laugh or something. Well, I mean, activist burnout is yeah. so common. Mm-hmm. And particularly if so much of what you're doing is about all the shit that's fucked yeah, up. Yeah, I mean, if you and if you start thinking about capitalism as a whole as part of the evil or maybe even the root of all the evil that is overwhelming because that's just like it's it can be very hard for people to even imagine a different system so i've definitely experienced that but it's like part of what helps the system sustain itself is that it burns people out you know i think actually not getting burnt out working to change it is is really important so that's what i'm kind of interested in about boost house cuz mm-hmm. you have a video what is it called when are you going to go viral spiritually? Oh, yeah. <laughs> going viral spiritually, the mechanics of the upward spiral. That's right. It's from 2011, so it's Very rare early video, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but watching that video made Boost House make a bit more sense in terms of maybe what okay, you're trying yeah. to do there. And also just your work make more sense in terms yeah. of the optimism in it. Yeah. 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 I mean, that was that was before I had as much of a political understanding consciously in my work. So it's kind of a simplistic video. <laughs> but what it's saying is essentially if you boost somebody, make them feel better or whatever, then they will be in a position probably happier or feeling more capable or whatever, that they are more likely to boost others as well. And then if they do boost others, maybe that might include even boosting you back, then you get potentially even boosted up to a higher (laughs) level and others around them get boosted up to a higher level, which then if the people around that person are at a higher level, then they're more likely to send out a boost also. So then that person is more likely to receive another boost. So the boost grows in two ways um, via depth the same person receiving multiple boosts, but also in breadth, uh, you know, more people reaching out the network of boost expanding outwards. And also that video uh, laid out the difference between a mood altering boost, a MAB, where you just, you know, make somebody feel better at the time versus a paradigm altering boost or a PAB where you really like change the way somebody sees the world or something. And then it's like more of a long-term boost. <laughs> you know, I really do see my work as like, service of some type. It's not service in the same way as other like service jobs where I'm like just strictly serving exactly what people want. But I feel like my art is functional in that it like if it's not helping people, then it wouldn't be nearly as interesting to me. You know, it wouldn't matter much to me. Like it could be fun, I guess, just to do for my own fun or whatever. But like I wouldn't care that much about doing it that much. You know, when do you think it started becoming more like that because you started making videos in like 2011 yeah I think it was honestly always like that for me to some degree because Mm. I remember as a child I was very into sports I was not into art really or books at all but the way that I viewed sports was that I wanted to become like a professional sports player so that I could like inspire other people with how great I was at sports. You know what I'm saying? And it's always been because I have looked up to certain people and be like, wow, 
that's amazing what they do. It's so inspiring and great. Like, I want to do something like that, you know? And so when I was a kid, it was like athletes inspired me that way. And I wanted to give that gift to other people too by inspiring people the same way. But now it's like a lot of the people who have impacted me in that way have been poets or artists or sometimes just activists or podcasters or something. And I'm like, wow, I want to like have a similar impact that they have. Talking of this boosting stuff, you said that uh, in Boost House, kind of part of the idea was that symbiotic boosting system. Yes. Yes. Thank you. (laughs) Or a symbiotic co-boosting ping pong. (laughs) There we go. Of like, you'd find a way to cover rent so artists could come in and live there. You'd help them, they'd help you, all that sort of stuff. And one thing you said was that you feel like you've been in this position where you've gotten more success in some ways than your friends or peers who are just mm-hmm. as talented yeah. and gifted, et cetera, but maybe don't have the right tools or resources yeah. to make that work. I'm wondering what are those tools and resources do you think that you've happened upon or learned that yeah. make it viable for you? Well, the first thing I think is just an unshakable determination to do it. And in order to have that, well, Something that makes it much easier to have an unshakable determination to do it is like to have confidence that it's possible to do it. I don't know if it's because I grew up relatively privileged and like in the advanced classes or whatever that I was told that I could do great things or whatever. But for some reason, when I reached, you know, college age and everything and was thinking about becoming a poet or artist and whatever I wanted to do, I had pretty good self-esteem that like, you know what, like it doesn't matter if most people can't make a living as a poet, I can figure out a way to do it. It's like almost an unrealistic confidence that I had going into it. And I think my confidence has even been shook and is like a bit lower now or is a bit more like checked or something. But like, I really like, I really actually tried to do it. And that's like something that so few people do because you have so many guidance counselors or parents or like teachers who just say like, oh, it's tough to make a living as an artist. It's basically like a lottery draw. They don't make it seem like something that's hard work, but doable. They make it seem like you probably can't do it. And so they just try to discourage you. They try to encourage you to do something more practical or whatever. Or to teach. Yeah, yeah, with my MFA, The reason I was taking the MFA was because I figured I should probably go into teaching poetry because I had been convinced. And my family wanted me to, and also the relationship I was in at the time, I felt like we had sort of a plan that we were going to have somewhat of a standard family or something, you know? And I was like, okay, we'll probably need to buy a house and a car or something. So like, okay, I should get a good job. And then that, that relationship ended while I was in the MFA. And then a couple months later, I dropped out because I sort of realized, oh, it's my life now. I can just sort of, I can just do oh, wow. whatever I want. Because, you know, the thing is, even the past year or two when I've, like, felt more shook with my confidence in response to, like, certain, like, haters online, there's something in me that I'm very grateful for because I think it allows me a lot of perseverance in doing this stuff. I really do believe in myself even with other people don't. Yeah, that's interesting, that unshakable confidence thing. But even if you're not confident, see, the thing is you don't have to always feel confident in order to just be determined to do it, you know? That's something that I've learned this past year through acceptance and commitment therapy. ACT. You know about it? I've done ACT, baby. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) ACT. Yeah, well, I learned about it through Russ Harris's books, who is Australian. 
Oh, really? Okay, yeah. cool. His book, I his book, The Happiness Trap, oh, yeah, is yeah, pretty yeah. well known. But I actually started with his other book specifically about confidence called The Confidence Gap, I believe. But anyway, you know, what he talks about is that like, you don't need to feel confident in order to do the actions of confidence necessarily. You have to commit to act. You have to commit to do what you should do. You have to commit to act in line with your values. And that's very difficult. And of course, they give you other like strategies for how to make that happen. I think a bunch of that just frankly is terrifying. Like even just stuff like <laughs> yeah. being like, oh, I'll ask Steven Bergenbuck if I can interview him. And then being like, fuck, he said yes. And then you're yeah. like, shit, what am I going to ask him? I think that, I don't know, in my work, I think a lot of it is just yeah. sitting with fear yeah. and anxiety. Sitting with fear, nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. I mean, doing what you care about is likely to be scary because you care about it. Yeah. You know, but it's like, this is life. <laughs> you know, this is life. Yeah. Like. I was texting my friend this morning saying, I'm anxious about this interview. And he's like, you get to feel alive wow. for the next few hours. <laughs> and I was like, that is true. <laughs> wow. Do you think there's anything else? Like, yeah, you're a, yeah. Like, did, that are was you the stubborn about it? I am stubborn about it. I think that's part of the determinedness of it is like, because I would do one thing and it wouldn't really work. And I'd just be like, okay, what's the next thing I'm going to do, you know? And so that sort of commitment to it, I mean, that's what you need in order to like try things, fail, try better fail again, you know, try a different thing, learn things, spend a lot of time looking up stuff. If you feel like your art practice is good, like your your paintings are good or your music is really good and you're honest with yourself and that's true, maybe you need to learn more about the promotion side or like for me, it was very empowering to learn about like social media marketing for like bloggers and for YouTubers and oh, stuff. Oh, did you go through you know? and like learn all I that stuff? I learned. I mean, I did it a lot through practice too, but like I listened to people who talk about marketing, you know, people who are like capitalists, you know, like, <laughs> and that's actually, I, that's one of the reasons why learning about capitalism is like so confusing for me now is like, wait, did I like internalize anything from like these marketers that I've like listened to for practical advice like about how to get my work out there because it's like capitalist ideology is very pervasive it's just everywhere like the individualism of it like the way that they frame motivation and greatness but yeah I looked at marketing blogs and stuff do you have anyone that you'd recommend well the one person that I learned the most from was Gary Vaynerchuk and he's a capitalist. Like he really believes in like the competitive economic system is like healthy and it's everything. I mean, I don't agree with him politically on everything. I think people should be able to have houses and food and everything. It shouldn't be based on competition and it should, you know, but in terms of like how to use social media to reach an audience and to build a following, his work was really helpful to me. His early work his book Crush It, I found it at a random bookstore and that was what I started with. And it's a bit outdated now, probably that book, but maybe his other books would be helpful. I don't know. I, I'm like, I'm hesitant to recommend him as a whole because I know that I disagree with some stuff he says, but honestly, his work helped me the most with marketing. But then there was many other sources too, you know, there's so many bloggers and like YouTubers who have given advice on that stuff. So I looked up lots of different posts about it and a couple different books. There was a marketing book called Made to Stick that was pretty popular that I remember reading and that was helpful to me. I remember that business writer Seth Godin. Seth Godin, yeah. Who I also don't like for various reasons, but certain things he said really helped me understand 
how you get people's attention. Like his early- He's got that purple cow book. Yeah, the yeah. purple cow, which also he has a TED talk of it. So you could just watch that probably. But it's like basically the idea that like people talk about things that are remarkable. And so you should do things that are remarkable, not things that are just like kind of good. And that's a really key thing if you're trying to market something like a musical project or like a, an art thing. It's like, why would people talk about your art? You know, why would people talk about it? Is it actually like very different than other art? You know, if you're just doing something that's pretty similar to other artists, but you're like subtly just a little bit better, that's like not that much of something for people to talk about, you know? But if you do something that's like really wacky, like you do like one theme of your music, it's like you only talk about this one thing or you play a really weird instrument or you play a style that's just like really abrasive or really different in some way. I had these videos called be i misspelled it as be your slough but these be, be yourself videos early on where i was like kind of encouraging people to just do you a hundred percent and maybe even a hundred and ten percent in order for people to find your stuff you have to stand out in some way because there are literally like millions of people who are posting their art on the internet like why would people spend time on yours how is it different I got to say, I have definitely been down the marketing Silicon Valley tech entrepreneur yeah. startup culture. It's dark hole. shit. You know, I really. <laughs> I've I, learned a lot from it. Yeah, you learn from it. And I feel like you have to learn to unlearn from it too sometimes. Mm. It's like, it's funny. I was listening to this one book last winter. It was about content marketing. <laughs> and like, it was so bad though. Like, it got it, like, certain things got me pumped up or like I was interested because it was talking about diversification of like income streams. No, it was diversification of content streams, actually. The book was called Content Inc. I don't really recommend it. I think Gary Vaynerchuk's <laughs> books was more helpful. It was talking about basically you should start with one channel and build that up or like one or two, but like mainly focus on one. And then like, once you get to a certain point, you can diversify, like start the other ones. But it's like, it sort of made me realize like, you know what, most people know me almost entirely from my YouTube videos. And like, I spend a lot of time on the podcasts, on the books, on other people's books, on touring, on all this social media interaction, you know, making posts for Instagram and Tumblr and whatever. And it's like, you know what, if I just focused more on making the YouTube videos, like that's what would actually matter to most people, you know? That was like one thing I learned from that book. But all the like cliche, inspirational capitalist quotes, you know, the thing is like capitalists are always quoting like Helen Keller and stuff to show like- even Wait, I'm quoting Helen Keller. Yeah. Wasn't she the one who was deaf and blind? Yeah, yeah, and yeah, yeah. That? Yeah. And like, no, well, the thing is because she like endured such- hardships yeah. through her disability. They always like love to use like the quotes from people who had struggle but overcame it. Mm. But like Helen Keller was actually a socialist, if I remember correctly. Like she's not a capitalist, but they I, sort of twist the word. Anyway, I'm getting off on this. I think tangent, you put up but... a really great tweet the other day, which was like using some people's oh, yeah. stories of struggle of yeah. lifting themselves out of poverty as a way of shaming other people. Yeah. Who are in poverty. I mean, capitalist ideology is based on like this narrative of like, it doesn't matter how poor you are, you can rise up and become successful in the system. And that being poor is actually kind of a moral. Yeah. And judgment. that it like, that implies often if you don't rise up, then it's like you're not working hard enough. This is completely, this is kind of 
in a different direction. Okay, but that's I, fine. But we went this too is really deep good. <laughs> we went very maybe. deep. So poetry is kind of not really seen as an artistic area that you can kind of make money from. I think in Australia there's only one poet who's making money okay. off her art. You should check her out. Yeah. Her name's Candy Royale. But okay. how do you work inside those expectations, like that you might do shows for free? How do you work with that? Because at the same time, you know, most of your work is available free or all of your work is available free. And almost, you- almost all of my work is available for free. Yeah. I feel like you have an imperative to share kind of, you know, you've got this like you want to share your gifts, but you also want to be able to make some money so that then you can share it some more. So how do you work in a system which often doesn't want to yeah. reward you in that way? So, yeah, part of it's that I don't even feel like I work in the poetry world anymore specifically. Sometimes I'll get invited to a reading series where it is like part of a consistent poetry community or sometimes rarely now, but sometimes I'll get invited by like a professor of an English class or something to a university. But I don't usually submit to literary journals anymore. I don't try to get my books reviewed in those venues either. So like a lot of times, actually, I'm not existing specifically in the poetry world anymore. So that gets me out of that world a little bit. I suppose that that still exists in the art world in general. Yeah, no, maybe that's not the best answer that was just addressing the poetry thing specifically but i suppose how do you exist in the art world we'll say the broad art world art or poetry or art or poetry world when there's so many expectations to not reward people financially or in financially in a way that's sustainable yeah well you have to take the long view of like if you build up thousands of or tens of thousands i think you could do it with just thousands of people who really like your stuff a lot. And if they care about you also, that's a bonus. But like, if you build up a lot of people who love your stuff, you will be able to make money from it some way, you know? Because those people want you to succeed, you know? So figuring out what those specific things are is interesting discussion, like talking about Patreon, talking about Kickstarter or other like fundraising things, talking about how to make money off touring, talking about which way of publishing books is best or which, you know, I make t-shirts also and how to do that. Those tactics can be interesting but like the main thing is you need to get like thousands and thousands of people to care about your stuff and so you can't be needing to make money at every step of the way so you should be willing to do some work for free you know or like take certain opportunities for exposure or whatever but yeah but it's like it's hard to balance that because if you're trying to make it sustainable, of course you do want to try to make money at certain points. And so like trying to figure out when those are and like trying to negotiate with other people's expectations can be difficult. I know for me, the touring is something that I've tried to make money from. And it's quite easy when you get the invitation from a university and they're offering to pay your flights and give you a hotel room and give you a big fee or something. It's like, that's easy to make money from that. If you're trying to tour more like a DIY band or something where you're just driving a crappy car or like taking public transportation buses between cities and you're like barely scraping by on donations from the door, it can be hard 
hard. I know like some hosts of events don't like to even ask for donations at the door. And I'm like, come on, like you can still like say if the person doesn't have money, they can still come in for free, but at least like ask people or something, you know? Cause I've noticed a big difference. If you just pass around a jar to the audience members, I'll get sometimes $30 or maybe $40. But if they take donations at the door, a lot of times I'll get like a hundred some dollars. And that's a big difference to me because like maybe the bus tickets were like $50. That's like a difference between losing $10 versus making, you know, $80 or something. So I guess I do feel frustration sometimes that people don't understand that I'd want to make some money from it or something. But most people understand. I think most people understand. I think sometimes there can be this idea that asking for money for something that you do for love, for love in air quotes, because yeah. that's so often how we talk about artists and it's a way of yeah. telling them that they can't have anything sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Means that there can be a lot of shame around asking for what you need, Yeah, I suppose. And I think some of it's about working that out. And I think probably in your situation where you now have a lot of people following your stuff who are willing to support you financially through that means you can sort of be like, well, fuck that. You know what's interesting? The biggest story I have probably in relation to these attitudes that people have, though, is when I did my Kickstarter for Boost House at the beginning of it, and we mostly... Most of the donations came from like people essentially buying pre-orders of our first two books. Like yeah. a lot of the $20, $50 pledges, like in that range, they were just like to get our first book or to get our first two books or whatever. And, and so in the end, you ended up getting 17 grand, which then comes to like 15 grand after the fees. And then yeah. minus how much the books actually cost to make, you know. Yeah, it was helpful at the start of Boost House, but it also like we weren't rolling in dough or anything, but like people's attitudes to that. It was really striking. I think a lot of people feel bitter because they haven't been able to make money from art. I understand that because, I mean, it sucks that most people have to do a job that they don't love. And it sucks that art isn't valued by most institutions or like funded that well and stuff. So I understand the frustration and the bitterness, but it's like, it was wild. Some of the things people were coming at me like, saying that I'm asking for handouts or that I'm trying to get people to pay my rent because I'm lazy or a lot of people saying like, get a job. Other people saying like, I want to know what the money's going to be spent on or whatever. But like the thing about it is the people who are saying these critical things weren't the people who were giving their money. They were the people who are like on social media, like, oh, what's going on over there? Somebody's getting money for a poetry project. Like, that's not fair. But it's like the people who decided to give their money knew what they're getting. And they know me because they love the work that I already did before. Uh, many of them I had a relationship with, you know, some sort of friendship over social media or something. So it's weird. And I remember this one other event too that I did where we were asking for donations at the event. It was a real wacky event. It was in 2013 and the promoter of the event decided to do this wacky thing where we lied about the performers who are going to be there. We said that there was going to be like celebrities performing and then it was a joke and there wasn't. So people were like upset about that. I guess understandably, but I thought it was pretty obvious that it was just like a joke. But like, <laughs> Who did you say was going to be there? Um, we said it was going to be Lil B, the bass god, Riff Raff, and then I think Queen Latifah was the third oh, one, which was like wow. out of left field. But the thing about it was that I remember there was a donation button on the page 
it was because it was like live streamed event. We only got $65 in donations. And I remember one person on Twitter or Facebook saying like, I want to know where those donations went to, you know, because they were upset about the event or whatever. And it's like, it was $65. It was mainly from one person, John Demet, the patron saint of all lit was his nickname. He, uh, you know, he gives money like all the time to stuff that I do. He's just like a great supporter over the years. And he was happy with the event. And then there was $15 from who knows who else. It was such a little amount of money. And this person was like, I want to know where those donations are going to. It's just like so much policing of like, I don't know. It's it's really weird. It's really loaded. I think that's one of the difficulties, particularly around funding your work in that way, like through Patreon or through methods where people know and can see where the money is going. And in some ways that's great because it's really transparent, but in some ways you open yourself up to a lot of criticism. And I've noticed that I have those anxieties around yeah. what I do because people can see more of my Yeah, like actually finances. the reason why I put off Patreon for as long as I did, because I knew about it at least a little while before I started doing it. I don't remember how long, but I was like, you know what? People are going to talk crap about me because they'll see that, oh, I'm making this much money per video and they'll debate whether that's worth it or whether I put in enough work or whatever, you know. It happened like once or twice, but it hasn't happened that much actually through Mm. the Patreon, which I'm grateful for, I guess, but... Yeah, and I think Amanda Palmer's kind of talked about this stuff a lot because uh-huh. she's sort of one of the biggest people who's crowdfunded yeah, a lot she, of stuff. Yeah, I mean, stuff. she's made a lot from her. Oh, yes. So. I think her Patreon at the moment is like, it's like over $30,000 per thing. It's yeah. a lot of money. But she's always said that the people who are critical, and let's not get into the ethics of Amanda Palmer, but the people who are critical aren't the fans. Like the fans never yeah. had a problem yeah. with what was going on, and she's actually quite... She asks a lot of questions of her fan base of like, is this okay uh-huh. if I do this? I see. Yeah. I want to do this thing. Do you think it should be a thing? Can I charge for it or not? So hmm. she's quite see, responsive yeah. with her audience. Yeah. And most of them don't have issue. It's just the people who are yeah. outside the Amanda Palmer Club yeah. who are like, what the fuck? What is going on here? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's been my experience too. Yeah, the actual people, they're usually just like, they just want to support you, whatever you're doing. The fans. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's how I feel because I support you on Patreon. Yeah. I'm a fan. And I know you charge per thing. Per video, yeah. Yeah, you charge per Only video. per video, yeah. I don't charge for the other stuff, yeah. And I'm like, I would just give you the money every month. It's cool. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I find that interesting in terms of how you talked about it in terms of why you go with per video kind of felt like you were keeping yourself in check in terms of making yeah. sure that I am giving a person a thing when they give me money. Yeah, giving them a thing and also like, I don't even know exactly what I'm keeping in check because sometimes I'll post a video like a live performance, for example, and I won't charge my patrons for that because it was just a live performance that I recorded, maybe slightly edited and uploaded. You know, it's like I didn't put the time and work into it, so I didn't feel that it's fair to be paid for it or something. I don't know. I think all of that stuff is kind of a work in progress. Yeah, you know, it's tricky. Okay, I have two last questions. Yeah. Okay, one, do you have any resources that help you boost yourself and others? What are your best boosting techniques? Or like stuff that you're like, I read this thing yeah. or I watched this yeah. thing and that was really helpful. You've talked yeah. a bit about Acceptance marketing. and commitment therapy <laughs> is literally, it's changed my life. It, <laughs> but I mean, essentially what acceptance and commitment therapy is, is like mindfulness techniques applied in a very like procedural way and commitment to your values and stuff. It's just like, so like basically I would recommend meditation 
to people. And I would recommend other stuff like that, that just helps you to stay more in the present moment, you know, be more mindful because I feel like that's the best thing. Lately, I've I actually I have an app that is related to ACT that is like it's called ACT Companion, but it's kind of expensive. It was like $10. But one part of what it does is it just gives you these notifications throughout the day, like pay attention to your sense of smell for a few seconds <laughs> or like or like put your fingers as close together as possible without touching them. It's just sort of these things that like root you in the present moment. And like I started doing them when it told me to, but also like started doing them like at other times where I'm like in line or waiting somewhere. And like, I feel like much more present and that's been very good. That's one thing or two things. (laughs) That's Um, a good one or two things. Yeah. Also daily exercise or regular exercise is really powerful that way too. Just moving your body, you know, you could get up. I mean, for the immediate thing, you just get up right now, jump up and down and yell something and run. And then like you might feel a little better after doing that. It's really wild because I pay attention to my body a lot when I'm like recording videos and stuff. And like if I'm like a little bit sad or like slow moving, I need to have a moment where I just like yell something and like run and jump and yell because it's really like it shakes you up in a different way, you know? But then also like as a regular thing, exercise every day, like when I was like feeling really sad last year, I got into the habit of like running every day. And it was like the one thing that like always would make me feel better, you know? So. Yeah. I always got to make sure I get out of my house. I I actually use (laughs) this like really, really dorky seven minute workout app. Oh, you know what? I just heard about that, but I haven't tried it yet. Is (laughs) it good? It's, it's. I mean, yes, yes, maybe. It's, <laughs> okay, yeah, it's, it's basically good. just like do push-ups for 30 seconds and then sit against do something the wall else, for yeah. 30 seconds. And, but you okay. can choose what voice is speaking to you. Oh, so you okay. can have like a militant-style coach. Wow. Or you can nice. – I always have the kung fu master and he's like to start is to succeed. And wow. it's pretty docky though. That's a positive though. message though. But it is free and I use it a lot, particularly if I'm in a funk or I'm really anxious and I need to like yeah. fucking get it out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, so last question. I feel a bit weird asking this question. So I hope it doesn't make you feel weird. When you picture your life mm-hmm. in the future yeah. and the community that you're part of and the situation that you're in, What is kind of your ideal? This is kind of a like, Mm -hmm. where will you be in five years? But I fucking hate that question. And I hate it when people ask me that question. So this is more like. No, I mean, I like this kind of question. I ask people this type of thing a lot because it's really interesting. You know, I don't think I'm going to have kids because I don't feel that passionate about it. And I think that you should probably only do that if you feel passionate about it because it seems like a ton of work (laughs) to do it well. And so I don't see myself having kids probably. You know, I think something like Boost House where I'm living with some really good friends or, you know, even just like if I lived near some good friends that we always hung out together, I think like having a a group of friends that I feel good about all of them, you know, that would be great. I think like a lot of time I've been moving like every couple years of my adult life to different states moving house as moving you would house. say moving uh so like I'm always not building up as deep of community as I would like where I go. I mean I have lots of connections through the internet and on tour I see people once in a while but like I don't have that many like close bonds in a community where I actually live. Boost house for a while we had a bit more of that going at certain times and it felt really good. 
but it's been hard because I focus so much on my work. I get so like pumped about doing my work that I just do want to do that all day. And then unless I live with people who are friends, I feel like I don't get out that much, you know? I have the same problem. <laughs> yeah, because I don't want to do things for fun. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, it's weird. Like going to parties does not excite me. If I go to a party, Well, one thing is I also, I don't drink or do drugs. So that's like part of it. But if I go to a party, like I'll end up just like trying to make internet content while I'm there. Like I'll start like documenting something weird that I'm doing, or like I'll be off in the corner, like drafting tweets or something, you know? So it's like, I love to do my work and I love to, I mean, obviously there's sometimes I'll do other stuff besides my work, but like, I feel like with my work, I've found something that gives me purpose. And it's like, I feel very in tune with that. And I feel an urgency with that. And I feel an importance with that where like, I'm not here to dick around. You know what I'm saying? On earth, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. Not, and, but that's why you also- You sound like, like you're in a long-term relationship. Very committed. <laughs> yeah, with my work. With your work. Yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think so. You strike me as someone who, in terms of the work you do, you don't have a concept of retiring If that makes sense. Yeah, but you know, actually it depends because, well, I probably will never like totally retire or something, but you know what? Like last year I got more scared off by like internet haters and stuff a little bit, which is a long story, but there's definitely been periods where it feels scarier to me to be a public figure or to have like a following and all that. And so there have been times where I've felt more like I wish I was just like making anonymous things and posting them more like, or the other thing is that I'm actually also really interested in like health stuff. And like, there's a part of me that is interested in becoming a doctor, but it's like every once in a while I get the idea that I might become a doctor. And then I learn about like how much work medical school is and residency and all that stuff. And I'm just like, it would be a big commitment. You know what I'm saying? It's not just like, oh, I'll go and be a doctor on the side. It's like, that's, <laughs> you know, that's intended to be your life I if you do it. So gone through that process quite a few times. With doctor? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Every like three years. Wow. But this time I think maybe, maybe it'll be longer. But like, it, wow. yeah. Because it's like, it would be such a real way to help people. Yeah. You know? I mean, I think my work helps people, but like it doesn't help people like cure their heart disease or anything. You know what I'm saying? I feel you like- could cure their heart and cure their heart at the same time. <laughs> yeah, maybe cure the heart in more than one way. But it's like, you know, it's funny because like I know that like I probably don't need to become a doctor. <laughs> I probably I have other things I can do with my life, but it's like every time like somebody is talking about like, oh, this weird pain I have or like, oh, my something, something is acting up or whatever. I become so interested in it and I have such a deep desire to want to be able to know what it is and to help them. And it's like, is that feeling going to go away? Am I going to just go through the rest of my life wanting to be the person who has the answer to that, but never pursuing that? I feel like becoming a doctor might even be my second great career ambition or something that someday I might pursue with the same sort of determination that I'd had to pursue this first one. I think if you became a know. doctor, you would really kill it on figure one, which is the doctor Instagram. It's like an Instagram doctor for doctors Instagram. where they take photos of medical is it, it's procedures. It's like an app? It's an app, yeah. Oh my God, yeah, you like, have it? I don't have it personally. Do you have to be a doctor to have it? No, no I you think could be anyone other can health get it. professionals yeah. or you just get one, get it? I think anyone Figure can get one. it. one, wow, I'm going to Apparently look into it's it. quite gross. I mean like, okay, it well, might. I would love to see some gross pics. <laughs> 
Okay, cool. Thank you so much for talking to us yeah. about life, doctorhood, inspiration, service for others. Money, capitalism. Money, capitalism. It's been really great. Thank you for having me. Thanks. Woohoo! Woohoo! Listening back to this episode a year later, it's a really interesting insight into where I was at at the time. I really relate a lot to Steve's approach that most of his work is about giving something to others, that that's what he's doing it all for. I mean, that's exactly what this podcast is about and what all of my work is about, really. But the past few months, I've been really burnt out. Back in April, I got salmonella poisoning, which was a huge blow to my output and also my confidence that I still don't feel like I really fully recovered from, to be honest. And part of what I've realized is going on for me is that to be sustainable, you have to be looking after yourself to keep going. And I know that's (laughs) so totally obvious, so much so that I am bored of hearing myself say it, but it is actually a really fucking hard thing to do. A listener of Starving Artists put me onto this video by the philosopher Alain de Baton, and in it he says, anything worth doing unbalances you. So then the question becomes, what does balance you? I used to think that it was the success of my work, that having successful projects, appreciation, making something meaningful or valuable, that would be the balancing part. But whilst that's rewarding, whilst getting emails from all over the world from people saying, like, thank you, whilst that is really rewarding and it feels fucking great, it doesn't make me feel in control. What makes me feel in control is actually not giving all of myself away. It's about having some choice and vision and control over my life and my choices. And like it or not, in this world, a lot of control, choice, freedom maybe, comes from any living. And the reality is, whilst I've carved out some income streams to support my work, including Patreon, this is still very much a passion project and the gap between this perception of success and the reality has been an interesting experience. It's that I feel like I'm at that Point, to use a business analogy that any new business is at where there's a lag time between all the work you put in and seeing a return that makes it sustainable. But you just don't really know how long that period is. And I feel embarrassed saying this out loud, like maybe I don't have the stamina or the chutzpah or the determination Steve talks about in this interview, or whatever it is you need. And that's just a really hard spot to be in. So on that note, I want to leave you with another of Steve's videos, my personal favorite. It is my go-to video for when shit gets hard. It's called Choose to be Brave. 
If you're pursuing a path in life in which you're an artist or you're some other thing where you need to reach people, like you need to be known, you need to like get known, I would have a message for you specifically. And that is, um, nobody is universally loved. If you succeed at being well known, you will be misunderstood, you will be hated, you will have people who hate you, you will probably have people who try to convince other people to hate you as well, and that can be really frightening. And some people, when they get the first taste of that, that's when they back out. That's when they're kind of like, eh, I don't know if I want to experience that again. It's definitely not for everybody, you know? So if this sounds really bad, then maybe, you know, can reconsider your path a little. But it sucks even for us for whom it is right. That's what's tough about it. You know, just because it's tough doesn't mean that it's not right for you. Because for some of us, it is the right path, but the path is not always easy. It's just the fact of what the path is. And so you have to acknowledge that, you have to accept that, and then you have to choose to be brave. You have to choose to be brave. You have to choose to do it anyway. You have to choose to say, some people are not gonna get this. Some people are not gonna like this. I'm gonna stand up in front of this audience and only a certain percentage of them are going to like me. But I have decided that it is worth standing in front of this audience because I know that some people need me here. I know that some people need this. I know the importance of my message. I know the importance of my work. I know that that is worth putting myself in a line of people saying mean stuff about me too. You've decided that it's worth that because we know that we have something to say. So if that's you, then I'm giving you strength. I give you my love. I give you empathy because it's hard sometimes. But you know what you're doing. You know what you're doing. Remember who you're doing it for. The haters are sometimes louder than the lovers. So save all those notes that you get from people that appreciate. Take screenshots, read them again and again when you forget that your work matters. My best tip that I have is if you're getting up in front of the audience, whether this is on the internet or whether this is in real life or whatever, don't think about the haters that will comment. Because they will, but that's not what matters. What matters is the people in the audience who are going to love it so much, who are gonna feel it, who are going to discover their favorite artists today. Do it for the people in the audience who need to laugh right now. Do it for the people in the audience who need your message because they are lost in life right now without your message. That's all. That's all. I said that's all. If that meant something to you, you can find Steve at all good places on the internet and you can sign up to his Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Steve Roganbuck. And as promised up top, an update on my Etsy store. Last week in Honor Eastly Tries Etsy, I sold my first thing. Woo! And this week, my very obliging boyfriend is back to help me brainstorm another problem. What the hell should I a creative who makes a lot of podcasts, but not a lot of things you can actually buy. What the hell should I, what should I sell? So here's just one of the ideas from my boyfriend brainstorm Bonanza. And I had this other idea, which was to make a zine, which is a collection of 
I was actually thinking of asking all the artists in the first season, like, what's the first email you sent where you asked to get paid for your work? Oh. And then making a zine that's just a collection of all of those emails. Okay, so that's really cool. What is a simpler version of that idea? Because that's a lot of work. Yeah, see, I had that idea a while ago, but I never did it because I was like, that's going to take forever. <laughs> yeah, and you're so much less busy now. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I suppose I could I could just do a print that's just, uh, just mine. Mm, so like as in the first time that I yeah. asked to get paid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if someone gets in touch with you saying, we've got this great thing we want you to do, and the first time you actually said, is there any money in this? Yes, yeah. You know you could do? What? Do that, and then on top of it, edit it, how you'd do it differently now. Like remove, yeah. remove the five times you apologize for asking for money. Yeah, or I could do it where it's like there's like a collection of three, Yeah. and one is from 2014, yeah, one yeah. is 2015, one's 2016, because how I write emails is really different. Absolutely. You're 2017 badass. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Actually expecting to get paid, how dare you? <laughs> Well, because I think so many of these negotiations, people can tell you all these ideas, but it's really hard to know how people actually write it. Totally. You could also do how long the first email took to write. Oh, okay. Like <laughs> a day and a half. <laughs> and then how long it takes you now to say, is there, what's the budget? Yeah. Half a day. <laughs> <laughs> I like this. Would you, do you think people would buy it? Yeah, I reckon. Because it's charming and it's instructional. And mm. it's inspiring, which is your whole thing. <laughs> and a little bit over Sherry. It's the perfect <laughs> honorary sleep pack. <laughs> that, is, that is kind of my brand, yeah. In fact, I decided it was so my brand that I actually went away and made that very product, which is now available in my Etsy store. It's a thing you can buy and you can put it on your wall. So here's my challenge to you this week. Try and think of 10 things that you could make and sell. And if you don't make things, if you're a writer or a podcaster or a conceptual artist, this challenge is especially for you. Give it a go. It's brainstorming, so most of the things probably won't be great, but one of them might be good. And if you do make a list, tag me on Instagram or Twitter or wherever. I want to see your ideas. And when you're ready to have a go at selling your thing, you can set up an Etsy store and put it out into the world. I learned this week there's actually over 27 million buyers on Etsy. That's 27 million people looking for things to buy. If you want to set up your store, you can use the code STARVINGARTIST to get your first 20 listings free. Visit starvingartistpodcast.com forward slash Etsy for all the details. That website again, starvingartistpodcast.com forward slash Etsy. You'll also see in there a link to my Etsy store where you can now buy a print of my very first email where I asked to get paid. Editing help for this episode was provided by Peter C. Hayward and Lance Turnbull. As always, the intro music for Starving Artist is by me and Starving Artist is made possible by everyone who supports me on Patreon. You can pledge $1 or more to support me making things, things like this podcast by heading to patreon.com forward slash Easley. Love and choosing to be brave, even when it's scary. Till next time. Bye-bye.